All right, open your Bibles to Judges chapter 15, Judges chapter 15, as we are studying the character of Samson. And tonight in Judges 15, 1 through 8 is, is the text for tonight, Judges 15, 1 through 8. And this evening, we remember last week that uh, Samson had retaliated for something that a threat that was made to his wife and um, for losing a, a bet with the Philistines. And um, anyway, he's going to retaliate for that. Romans chapter 12, verses 19 and 20 says this. Paul said, Beloved, speaking to the Roman Christians, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The supernatural result of the born-again life is that the believer grows to be more and more like Jesus. So God says to us, do not avenge yourselves. In other words, not to take revenge on others who have done something to you. We know the world's way. We don't get mad, we get even. You've probably heard that expression before. It's our natural behavior. The natural fallen heart will come up with all kinds of objections to not taking revenge. But the answer of the Bible is, do not avenge yourselves. And there's no way around that. It's an absolute statement that has no loopholes. There's no getting around it. The Bible doesn't say, do not avenge yourselves, except under such and such conditions. You know, it doesn't say, do not avenge yourselves, except for certain reasons. It says plain and simply, do not. Do not ever take revenge. And this study is going to focus mostly on Samson's avenging himself for the events that took place in our last study in chapter 14. Samson killed 30 Philistines because of losing his bet to them on figuring out a riddle that he gave them that also involved threatening his wife in order to get an answer. So let's begin with verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. And it reads, After a while, in the time of, wheat har of the wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. And he said, Let me go into my wife into her room. But her father would not permit him to go in. The way Samson was received here by his father-in-law, or former father-in-law, when he returned to Timnah to see his, pro uh, see his wife, probably wasn't what he expected. And it didn't make him very happy. And it provoked him to get back at him. It doesn't take much for us to want to get even. It seems that Samson's anger at his wife you know, he, he, for betraying him at the wedding feast had caused him to lose his, his bet. And, 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 and it's, he, he's, he's, not, he's lessened now his anger. All right? his, his, he's had time to cool down and to think about what had taken place. And so he's not as angry at her anymore. It's evidenced by him going to see her again. He decides to go to Timnah and see her. 
and he hopes to start their married life together. So he takes her a goat as a gift. Now, you think of that today, you think, oh, wasn't that charming? He brings his, his former wife a goat to prepare the damage that he had done. Well, this isn't unusual. Again, you always have to look at the culture. This isn't, isn't unusual for that time in the East to take somebody a present. Now, this might, not, this might not just be a gesture of courtesy, but one of reconciliation as well. In other words, a way of saying, hey, my, my dear, I'm sorry for what transpired, you know, a while back. Now, a goat was valued, and it was considered a great delicacy in that day. And I'm sure that Samson thought bringing her this gift, man, she would welcome him with open arms, bringing her into her house. In my mind, he's thinking she'd understand, A, that it wasn't my fault because they offended me. And he was coming back to forgive the past and to pick up where they left off and to start living the married life. And surely his wife and in-laws would understand and they'd welcome him back with open arms. But that's not the way we read it here in chapter, in verses 1 and 2. You know, it's typical, I, I, well, maybe I should just speak for myself. <laughs> but that's what guys do. They mess up big time. Big time. And then they think they can bring a little gift over and say, Honey, hey, let's, it's, all, it's all cool. Let's just start fresh. It's like what they did didn't happen and and she's gotten over it and everything's cool we can get back to normal and i'm sure that's what samson was thinking here that her gift his gift to her would welcome him back to timna she just throw herself at him and say oh honey i'm so glad you're home uh and again he was hoping to pick up where they left off and start marrying uh you know living the married life and surely, again, everybody would understand. But that warm and fuzzy welcome home that he probably expected, hey, it was just the opposite. Samson's actions when he came back home to Timnah to be with his wife might look like a commendable move on his part. You might say, oh, what a neat guy. He let his temper cool down. He's trying to patch things up now, and he's wanting to move forward. But, but before we think of, of, of how wonderful Samson might be, we need to go back, and we need to remember the things that he had done, the things that are involved in this marriage that made it what it is, and the reconciliation of it, uh, making the reconciliation of it something less than honorable. Now, this isn't a passage of Scripture on how to get a troubled marriage back together. Instead, this is a passage of Scripture that shows the terrible mess that a believer becomes entangled in when he or she marries an unbeliever. It doesn't matter what Samson does about what took place in Timnah. It won't be enough. It won't bring any real or lasting joy, peace, or happiness. If he stays away from Timnah, he'll be frustrated in his desires for his wife. If he goes back to Timnah, he's going to be very upset when he finds out that he can't have her anymore as his wife. And a lot of marriage problems today are like this one. And they're brought to a, they're brought to a pastor to be fixed. And I've, I've seen a lot of those over the years. But the pastor doesn't have a satisfactory solution or really one that they, that they like. When you tell him you have to work at it. 
You have to love one another. You have to forgive one another. You have to forget the past. And you have to move forward. Well, the first thing they want to do is bring up the past. They don't want to move forward. It's like they get stuck there. Well, you don't know what he did. You don't know what she did to me. You don't know how mean they were to me. And on and on it goes. Well, maybe not. But I know one thing for sure. Staying back there is not going to help you get forward. Get ahead. Do what you're you're here to do. You've come to counseling. You want to know how to fix the damaged marriage. And so, uh, again, the pastor does not have the solution that they're looking for. They're, they want a magic potion or some pill they can take and take and, and, and everybody leaves and it's happily ever after. So, uh, again, it doesn't work that way. No matter what the advice is or the action to be taken, it's not going to result in much or if any, in any peace and happiness. It will be full of a lot of serious problems and troubles. Because what they want to hear is, it's the man or the woman you gave me. They're the problem. And where did that stem from? The Garden of Eden. First thing Adam did when God confronted him. Adam, what did you do? Well, Lord, it's the wife you gave me. We're still doing that today. It's the husband you gave me. It's all his fault. They're to blame for all of our problems. If they wouldn't do this, and on and on it goes. And they just point fingers all day long. That's why it never gets patched up. You know, they won't like the counsel at all. The best counsel is to forgive and to forget. I'm not saying it's easy. I know for a fact it's not easy. You need to repent of your rebellion and your unforgiveness against God and each other, and you need to cry out to God in mercy for his help. Those who are involved in unpleasant marriages, they don't want to be rebuked. They don't want to repent. They want their partner to be rebuked, and they want their partner to, be, to repent. They want their marriage problems to just go away, even though they were married in violation of God's will from the beginning. They want to be able to live in disobedience to God without experiencing the negative consequences. So they'll ask their pastor and their church friends to pray for them, that everything will work out. But it won't. It won't work out unless you work together as a husband and wife at solving the problems. And then when they go to the counseling and they are told what they were supposed to do and yet they don't do it and the marriage falls apart, guess what they say? Well, we tried. We went to counseling. But it's like I've told many couples that I've talked to. I said, you know, here's what you have to do. And basically, get your eyes off of your, your, your spouse. You look at what you need to fix, and you and God deal with that. And I, the other one, other person, I say, you, kneel, you, you, you and God deal with the problems that you need to deal with, and allow God to work in each of you, and, and leave the other one alone. And let God work in each of you, and you'll see it come together. And I'll tell them, you know, it's like going to the doctor. You know you're sick. You're not feeling well. Something isn't right. You go to the doctor. The doctor looks at you. He examines you, and he says, well, here's the problem. And he tells you, and he says, here's here's the medicine. Here's the prescription for getting well. You know, it may be a surgery. It may be uh, some terrible-tasting medicine. It might be something that's really unpleasant. 
and you don't like doing it, and you don't want to do it, so you say, forget it. I'm not going to do it. Well, you're not going to get better. You know, if he gives you that prescription, and you take the medicine you don't like or you don't want to go, you just say, forget it. I'm not going to do it. And then you don't get better. Don't dare say, hey, the doctor couldn't help me. You wouldn't take the medicine, as unpleasant as it was. And so you can't blame the doctor. And I tell them the same thing. If, if, a lot of times, if you, do, if you come for counseling, but you're not going to take the counsel, you're wasting your time. It's, it, there's no magic potion. There's no magic pill. There's no easy way to fix this. And the problem starts with each individual. We, we, both sides, there, there's a, usually a problem on both sides. And we need to look at the problem. And we need to work on that problem together with God involved in the middle. But it won't work out unless you work together at solving the problems. And when it fails and they go to divorce court, they say, we tried. That's the importance of seeking premarital counseling and prayer. It might have done them some good. Doing like Samson did and marrying against the counsel of God and the godly advice of his parents, they said, hey, this person's not right for you, Samson. He didn't care what the parents said. And it created a lot of problems in Samson's marriage that they'll simply have to live with the rest of their lives regardless of all of their foolish expectations that everything's going to be all right. In some cases, God does get involved. That is, God intervenes in these situations and graciously works miracles. But usually, like Samson's case, God allows the situation to, to reap what it sowed as punishment or chastisement for those who have obeyed the Lord. And, and disobeyed the strong warning that others gave them to avoid a forbidden marriage. God will not be mocked. God's word will not be mocked. God's word will be honored. So he will let these mixed marriages, these situations take place to show in a very profound way the foolishness of ignoring his way, his word. So Samson's return to Timnah won't bring peace, just more aggravation. No matter how honorable Samson's effort is here in verses 1 and 2 to look like, oh, what a wonderful thing's going on, and, and he's, he's you know, here and he's trying to make things right. No matter how high his expectations might be for a successful experience in him going back, it's not going to happen. Psalm 62 verse 5 says, My soul wait only upon God and silently submit to him, for my hope and my ex expectation are from him. What do you hope in? The government? You know, a particular political party? Do you hope in yourself? Do you hope in man? The Bible says hope in God. My expectation is from him. The psalmist also said in, in, in Psalm 121, verse 1 and 2, the psalmist said, do I look to the mountains for my help? He says, my help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and earth. You see, many times we look at the creature and not the creator. You need to go to the source. You, know, you need to go to the one who, who ordained marriage. Marriage wasn't conceived in some cave, as they say, millions and millions of years ago by some cavemen. God ordained marriage. 
God ordained marriage. He officiated at the first wedding. We read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 22 through 25. It says, Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, note, there are four principles here in these two, three verses. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. That's severance. When a man and a woman get married, they become the most important relationship. They are to leave the parental relationship. When I say leave, I don't mean they abandon their parents and they don't see them anymore or can't see them anymore. It means now we are the main focus of this relationship. I leave all other relations, my best buddies, my goals, my whatever, whatever it is. When I get married, now my wife becomes my most important ministry. So it says a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The word joined in Hebrew means to cleave. It means to stick. It's, it's a symbol of permanence. That a man and wife are to never divorce and remarry unless it's a matter of, of death. When that partner dies, they're free to remarry. Or again, unfaithfulness. And so again, it's a sign of per, it's a, it's a symbol of permanence. And they shall become one flesh. And here's where many times marriages fail. This one flesh. It speaks of unity, companionship. A lot of couples aren't best buddies. They're not companions. And, and so it, it it doesn't last. And then they says they were both naked. The man and his wife were not ashamed. This this is symbolized in, intimacy. They're both, both naked. It, it symbolizes intimacy and transparency. Pretty hard, hard to hide stuff from each other when they're both naked. Transparency. Being open with one another. So again, in these verses, you have severance, you have uh, a unity, you have permanence, and you have intimacy. And usually when there's a problem in marriage, one or all of these principles are broken. You can bet on it. And so, again, God ordained marriage. He officiated at the first wedding. So looking at what Samson experienced when he got back home in verses 1 and 2, you can see why he was so upset. First of all, verse 1 tells us that he tried to go into his wife's it's his room or chamber. It means his, his, his wife's bedroom. He tried to go into his wife's bedroom. But his father-in-law or former father-in-law wouldn't let him. You see, Samson was now excluded from his marital privileges. And this is always the way it is with sin. Sin makes a lot of promises to you. Sin makes a lot of promises to you, and you soon find out there's not that much fun in sin. And it's not lasting fun if there's fun at all. Samson won't have much enjoyment with his Philistine wife. She'll behave so badly when she's with him that he can't enjoy her company or he'll be left out of her company. And in the same way, those who pursue or gain wealth or position or fame through evil means and in different ways, they won't have much enjoyment in these things either. So we need to take the warning seriously so that the, the things that we gain in this world by evil means so that we don't, we're not lured into those things. 
into this trap and as a result experienced only loss, disappointment, and frustration. So now here in verses 1 and 2, the father-in-law tells Samson why he wouldn't let him see his wife. He told Samson in verse, three, in verse 2, notice, he, he says, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. He said, hey, Samson, the way you behaved, I thought you hated her. Samson's father-in-law had good reason to think he hated her. Because in his rage, in chapter 14, he abandoned her because he lost a bet. So Samson really couldn't argue with him. His behavior, Samson's behavior explained everything. It said everything. Since he had left his wife, why should the Philistines, why should they practice loyalty to a vow that he wasn't honoring? Here was a man who had made a Nazarite vow and he wasn't obeying or practicing that loyalty to God, why should the world honor, any, honor anything that he said? You know, and it's really sad and it's really shameful when the behavior of God's people is so bad that it encourages the world to act badly, ungodly. And more and more these days, Christians don't act any better than the world. They don't show any grace, no morality, no character that's any higher than the society that's around them and the world sees it and, and it treats the Christian accordingly for the Christian to complain is useless because the lost respect it's their own fault and sometimes we see this problem even in our churches and Christian schools they want and expect society to respect them and to give them special favors but the shabby way the churches often conduct themselves has caused the world to lose respect for them and to treat them as though they would any secular group. It's useless for these Christian organizations to protest because they have no one to blame but themselves for their disapproval. So after explaining to Samson why it, was why it wasn't possible to go into his wife, the father-in-law offers Samson another wife. Look at what he says at the end of verse 2. So again, I really thought that you truly hated, uh, thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Notice, is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. <laughs> so the one now that he offers in exchange is the younger sister of the wife that Samson abandoned. Samson was already tangled up in a bad situation with the first woman. If he takes another Philistine woman, he's going to get into more and more trouble. Now, he was smart enough to reject this offer. But later on, we'll see that, that he pursued other unholy women, which only made things worse for Samson. And again, that's the way it is many times with divorce and remarriage. People divorce hoping to get out of a bad situation, but they only make their situation worse. You know, and many times they go to two, three, or four marriages, and they say, man, I've just had bad luck with women. I said, no, you're the problem. You take you into every relationship. That's why it messes up. We always look at somebody else and, and, and don't think that I'm the problem. And I take that problem into every relationship and I mess that one up. And so, again, if they marry another person after divorce, this just complicates things in an already bad situation. Sin tries to be very appealing. 
It tries to be very sincere in what it offers you, hoping that you'll fall for it. First, we see the, the, the appeal in the father-in-law's words. He says in verse 2, look, is not her younger sister better than she? He tries to persuade, persuade Samson to take her based on her looks. And Sam, Samson already went through this route with the first pick. And we've been warned more than once in our previous studies about the misconception of choosing a spouse mainly based on outward appearance. Outward beauty has its place. But if this is going to be your first and strongest qualification in choosing a marriage partner, then you're going to end up with many heartaches, headaches, and troubles like Samson. Secondly, we see the sincerity of the father-in-law's offer. And again, sin always appears to be honest in what it's offering you. He says, please take her instead. The sincerity of the offer made to Samson in trying to make him happy and to pacify him with this exchange would, would be motivated by many things. First of all, he already, the father already had a dowry. Samson's parents gave them for the first daughter. So Samson has to provide something for the dowry for the second one or give the dowry back. For the first one. Now remember there was the possibility that Samson's parents were well-to-do. So the dowry may have been pretty big. Big enough that the parents, hey, we don't want to give it back. Another reason that would motivate his father-in-law's sincerity would be the fact of Samson's past behavior. The father-in-law would be eager to please Samson because of the fact that Samson killed 30 Philistines to pay off his lost bet on the riddle. So this would for sure put some fear in the Philistines' hearts about Samson. So, the, so trying to please him with this exchange of wives was sincere and understandably so. But all of this earnestness is deceitful. It doesn't have Samson's best interest at heart. Rather, it has the Philistines' profit in mind. And again, that's the way it is with sin. Sin will come across with this great sincerity and promise so that you'll buy what it's selling but it's not an honest desire it's not a sincere desire that wants to see you benefit from it but its desire is to see evil come out of it so we have to be aware of sin's passion and sin's sincerity don't let its enthusiastic advertisements and sale pitch get uh, get to you it's just a lot of enticement an alluring behavior to cheat you, defraud you of your character and your possessions. But what the father-in-law's offer to Samson did was make him even angrier to more retaliation. Samson wanted his first wife and he wouldn't be satisfied with his sister, with her sister. Again, in Samson's eyes, he was done wrong. And again, the Philistines were going to pay for it. But before Samson starts to retaliate, he tries to defend himself. Look at verse 3. And Samson said to them, This time, notice, this time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. The word them includes his father-in-law and everybody else that was involved in the wrong being done to Samson. I'm going to get them all is basically what he's saying. And just because Samson says he's, his payback would be justified doesn't justify what he's going to do. Defending his action may have, been, may have made him feel better. 
but it's not going to stand up to the standards of righteousness that God sets. Yes, what the Philistines did was wrong. There's no argument about that when they threatened his wife with death. But personal revenge is not God's way for us to act. Not only that, Samson is neglecting to take into consideration here that the marriage with the Philistine girl wasn't justified by God's commands. God did not approve of it. So if he disobeys God and experiences trouble because of what he did, he has no right to, harm, to do harm to those who caused him the trouble. Because his disobedience brought on his problems, so his disobedience, disobedience can't be defended. Instead of avenging himself against the Philistines, he needs to repent to God. Now, a lot of people would say, hey, right on, Samson. They mess with you, man. Get them back. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And, and, I, and I can't remember who it was when I read a quote. He said, if, if we all took eye for an eye, the whole world would be blind. Because that's what we would do, man. We would just get even with everybody. So... That's not what God's word says. Personal vengeance isn't approved by God or by scripture. And Sam, Samson's actions were nothing less than pure vengeance. Proverbs 20, 22, Solomon said do, not, said, do not say I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. God is going to punish wrongdoers in his time and in his way. He's already got that all worked out. But this doesn't allow us or any person to, to, to retaliate, to, to be vengeful in paying back the wrongs. Samson, notice, defends his retaliation in verse 3. Again, he says, this time I can't be blamed for everything I'm going to do to you Philistines. Now, notice, this time, does that mean the last time it wasn't justified? Now, this time I'm doing, it's going to be okay. It seems to give the hint that he may have felt a bit uneasy about what he had done last time, killing the 30 uh, Philistines in Ashkelon. Maybe his, his conscience is bothering him. But now, he says, this time, he feels that his vengeance is going to be justified for the wrong that he's going to do to them in this situation, which is worse than before. You can always approve of your bad behavior, even though it's bad, if you compare it to behavior that's worse. But if you're going to be right in assessing the rightness, assessing the rightness or wrongness of, of an act, you have to measure it by God's holy standards and not with some less righteous action. Look at verses 4 and 5 as Samson now gives the details of how he's going to perform this vengeful deed. Verses 4 through 5. It says, Then Samson went and caught 300 foxes, and he took torches uh, and turned the foxes tail to tail, and he put a torch between each pair of tails. When he had set the torches on fire, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and burned up both the shocks and the standing grain as well as the vineyards and olive groves. Samson's method was kind of weird, but it really worked pretty well. And it, it mostly, it's mostly believed that this animal was a jackal rather than a fox. But regardless, uh, he used some animal to perform this, this retaliation. Using the foxes or the jackals was a condemnation, though, against Samson. Because, you see, it would be a strange and wrong thing for a Nazarite to do to use these animals based on the law of a Nazarite in Leviticus 11.27. Because this, was a, this fox or jackal, it was a very unclean animal. 
that roamed around Palestine feeding on dead flesh. And then it would bury the bones of, its, of these dead animals and then dig them up later to feast on the leftover putrid remains. But this is not really anything for new, new for Samson, is it? Based on what we saw him do with the dead lion and the honey. He didn't, it didn't seem to bother him that God called this act unclean. And people aren't really different today. They're not bothered by what God says is unclean. And some people think that Samson must have used his supernatural strength to catch all of these animals. But the word caught here means to catch in a net, trap, or pit. So this would be the normal way, the usual way to catch foxes or jackals that prowled around in large packs. So these animals were very plentiful in Gaza and parts of Philistia. So Samson really wouldn't have a big problem catching that many animals. So Samson really didn't need to use his supernatural strength in this situation. Plus, the Lord doesn't use miracles when they're not necessary. So Samson tied the tails of these foxes together, probably with some kind of rope, and he also tied a torch to them. And then the foxes, you know, then, then they lit the torch on fire. Then the foxes would be frightened. They'd go wild trying to get away from the fire. So with the wheat fields right in front of them, they would head straight for the wheat fields trying to find protection, and naturally they would set the wheat fields on fire. Now, when you read this, the story sounds pretty far-fetched. These are the kind of stories that Bible critics like to use to tell you how absurd and how unbelievable the Bible is. But there are uh, well-documented customs to support what Samson describes here. History tells us of the Roman celebration of the Feast of Ceres that took place in April, at the same time of Canaan's wheat harvest, where foxes were let loose within an enclosed circle with burning torches fastened to their backsides, according to Matthew Poole. Wise men believe what the Word of God says, because those things are always confirmed. But the things that the critics tell us, hey, usually a bigger impossibility. So the foxes burned up all of their wheat to the ground, including the sheaves, that is the, the wheat that was already stacked and tied in bundles, and the uncut, uncut wheat, the, the, the wheat that was still growing. They also destroyed their vineyards and their olive groves. So what Samson did, man, this act was very destructive because it was harvest time. It would be a very dry season of the year. And the wheat, man, it would be very flammable. So the Philistines paid a huge price for their deceptive ways. And as we'll see in a bit, Samson and the destruction of the crops was not the end of the destruction. It was just the beginning. And before it was all over, destruction covered the countryside of Philistia. The disaster strongly illustrates that destruction comes upon men and their belongings because of ungodly living. The Philistines lived an unrighteous life And Samson was guilty of a lot of disobedience to God. And when you put the two together, you have destruction sweeping across the land. Sin always ends in destruction. It makes lives and lands desolate, emptied of good things. From the Garden of Eden to the present day, sin has left a terrible path of destruction wherever it's been. Sin has destroyed marriages, Sin has destroyed families. Sin has destroyed homes, friendships, nations, churches, 
health, happiness, the list goes on and on. Remember that the next time you are tempted to indulge in some sin. Because nothing that you gain from sinning will make up for the destruction that it will bring. Samson's destructive, vengeful spirit with the foxes led to more retaliation by both sides, by Samson and the Philistines. And this continual retaliation will keep on bringing a lot of loss of life. Again, this is what sin does. Look at verse 6. Then the Philistines said, who, then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Notice how the retaliation continues, but it gets worse and worse. Burning the crops affected these Philistines' lives and their financial position. So they were looking for the culprit who'd done this to them. But instead of dealing with Samson, they went to Samson's father-in-law. And the vengeful act that they took against the father of Samson's former wife was heartless and it was cruel. The Philistines probably burned down his house to the ground with them in it. The death of the former wife of Samson had tried to avoid this by betraying him uh, ends up dying anyway. When Samson's guests at the wedding feast went to Samson's wife to see if they could get an answer to the riddle from her, they told her, look, if you don't get the answer for this riddle from your husband, we are going to burn you and your father's house down in it. So she treacherously betrayed Samson so that she could save her own life. Life was more important than character, but it was still a bad deal. Lying, betrayal, and deceiving in order to save your neck from some loss will eventually bring you that loss anyway. Matthew Henry said this, The mischief we seek to escape by any unlawful practices, we often pull upon our own heads. Now, some might say, well, hey, she would have died sooner if she hadn't given these guys the answer to the riddle. That might be true. But maybe not, because that would have been a very different story. But if she had died, then at least she would have died with character. But here she dies with shame. Shame is always the end for those who would try to save their necks, their positions, their, their, their possessions, and their lives, or other things at the expense, uh, expense of character. No sooner had the Philistines burned Samson's former wife and her father when Samson said this in verse 7 and 8. Since you would do a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you, and after that I will cease. So he attacked them hip and thigh with a great slaughter, and then he went down and he dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Etum. The words of Samson when he said, Since you would do a thing like this means because you have done this terrible thing. Samson was so upset about what the Philistines had done. And we believe that he was mainly upset about what they had done to his wife, not so much his father-in-law who had given her away to another man. So being upset, Samson decided to go back, get back at them for, the, uh, 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 for their retaliation. He retaliates against their retaliation. And the retaliation gets worse and gets greater indeed as it always will. Once personal revenge starts, man, it is hard to stop. 
Because one act brings on another and another and another until sometimes people forget about what the whole thing started from. They're just so caught up in getting even. When Samson burned the wheat fields, the Philistines then burned Samson's former wife and her father. This provoked Samson now to take revenge on those that retaliated with now a great massacre of them. Now in our next study of Samson, we're going to see Samson trying to take revenge on their vengeful action. But Samson's action, it was a bloody one. And the phrase in verse 8, he attacked them hip and thigh with a great slaughter, is a well-known expression for a cruel and unsparing slaughter. It showed how revenge increases in cruelty if it's not stopped. It also showed that God was starting to move now more severely against the Philistines for their oppression of Israel. Now, we don't know how many Philistines Samson killed or how he killed them. But it says here it was a great slaughter. After the attack, it says that Samson retreated to a a cave in the rock of Etam. Not because he was afraid. It wasn't because he was trying to find a safe place to hide from the Philistines. He went there to wait for another opportunity to inflict further avenging injuries of Israel on the Philistines. Edward Bulwer-Lytton said this in closing, Revenge is a common passion. It is the sin of the uninstructed. The savage deems it noble, but the religion of Christ, which is the sublime civilizer, emphatically condemns it. Why? Because religion ever seeks to ennoble man, and nothing so debases him as revenge. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for this powerful lesson, God, on revenge, retaliating for things done to us, Lord. Father, help us to be like Jesus. Father, people cursed Jesus. They spit on him. They called him names. They pulled out his beard. They nailed him to a cross. There was, they, they did, man did everything they possibly could to Jesus. He never once retaliated. He never once defended himself. He never once got angry at them rebuked them or called them names. He loved them in spite of what they did. And the Lord calls upon us to do the same. It's not easy, but through the power of His love and His Holy Spirit, we can be like Christ. So Lord, empower us with the Holy Spirit to be all that you have called us to be. And Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Wednesday, we'll be back in Jeremiah chapter 50, and it's God's judgment on Babylon. And we've been seeing the judgment that God has been bringing upon these these cities uh, that that worshipped idols and um, came against Israel. God bless you guys.